Hello and welcome to what we're calling Degree of Difference, a new format of show for the Climactic Podcast, the flagship show of the Climactic Collective, the podcast network by and for Australia's climate community. That's getting to be quite the long title, but I love it and love knowing what I'm about to say for once. Uh, today is a pilot of this show and will be a bit of an experiment for how civil, uh, respectful disagreements can be aired and difference of opinions can be uh, discussed within the climate community and, and hopefully discourse can ensue for the advancement of the solution of the climate crisis, which is after all what we're all here for. Uh, I'm your host for today's pilot, Mark Spencer, and joining me are Daniel Bleakley, woo, and Asher Hello. Coleman. Guys, feel free to introduce yourselves rather than me sort of giving a, a canned, this is the long list of achievements of each of you. Uh, Daniel, do you want to start us off by a little introduction to yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, my name's Daniel Bleakley, and I'm, I'm a 38-year-old. I'm on uh, Wurundjeri land, and um, yeah, I'd just like to say before we start as well to, to pay my respects, our respects to elders past and present. Just acknowledge that we are on stolen land as well. Grew up in central Queensland in a small coal mining town called Clermont, which is the closest town to the proposed Adani mine. There until I was uh, 18 and then I did an exchange program to Germany and then I came back and studied engineering, mechanical engineering. And during that time, I worked in a coal mine as well in my hometown for three months as part of a practical experience. I did, did my degree. I worked uh, designing hydraulic equipment for a company in Brisbane before moving to the United Kingdom, where I worked in Scotland, in Aberdeen, in the oil industry. And I was designing a piece of uh, machinery that would travel through oil pipelines in the North Sea to um, inspect them for damage and that kind of thing. It was a, a super high-tech piece of equipment. I'm, I was one of the engineers that was working on that. Mm. So I've worked in the coal industry and the oil industry, <laughs> strangely enough. Couldn't handle the Scottish winter anymore, so I um, ended up coming back to Australia where I moved to Perth and um, worked as a mechanical engineer in the mining industry, project manager at a company in Perth which um, manufactured mining equipment and other minerals processing equipment. So I was a project manager on a few projects for large mining companies, like for Rio Tinto, to build some equipment for them. So yeah, I've worked closely with the mining industry. And then I lost my job during the global financial crisis. I'd went from being on big bucks as an engineer in, in mining to not having any income and end up working in a bar. So I then became, at the age of 27, I became a bartender. Great experience for me and um, ended up starting a company, moved to Melbourne. Um, I've run a printing company here and then I've always been interested in climate change, but in the last 12 months I've got into activism and I've joined, you know, the Greens and Extinction Rebellion. I've been very active because I'm, I'm getting really worried and, and really scared about what, what we're facing. And um, that's how I met Ash, uh, was through the movement. And I also met Mark through the movement as well. So, yeah, that's, that brings me up to today. Perfect. As for me, I grew up on a permaculture property. Uh, so I've been sort of in the environmental movement pretty much since I was born. Um, it was a teaching and demonstration site. So we had people come from all over the world to learn permaculture, which for anyone who doesn't know is um, basically an agricultural system based on the principles of sustainable design. 
it's actually an Australian uh, movement, um, Bill Mollison, who sadly passed away, I think probably about a decade ago now, it's been, mm. it's been a while, uh, was one of the founders along with uh, David Holmgren, who's Victorian. I've been part of the movement basically since I was uh, born in some ways and then did a bit of volunteering with uh, pro-climate parties and did what I think uh, most people do, you know, talk with their friends about it. Uh, be get more and more concerned um, about climate, but not quite take that step to really doing a lot of personal action uh, beyond, you know, like recycling and so on for a while. And then after the 2019 election, I was like, okay, well, nothing's going to happen federally for three years at least. And we just don't have that time. We do not have the time to wait it out. So I can't sit on the sidelines. I need to do something. So I live out in Casey, out in Nari Warren. Unlike uh, Brunswick or so on, there's not quite as much uh, conversation out here about climate, or at least there wasn't uh, back when I started. And I was like, okay, look, we'll, I'll, I'll start a group out here. We'll see what happens. You know, it could crash and burn, but so, something needs to be done. And so I need to at least try. Yeah. And it turns out a lot of people had just been waiting for someone to start that movement. I'd, I'd, been, mm. I'd been waiting as well. I'd been waiting for someone to stand up and do something. I was like, okay, look, I'm going to start this group. We got a ton of interest uh, very quickly, got the ball rolling really rapidly. We started talking with local councils. Uh, we decided that since federal politics wasn't going to do anything and state politics seemed a little intimidating to start with, let's go with local council. Um, it's achievable, hopefully. Um, and it certainly was. We've, we've engaged with a good dozen uh, local councils at this point. I've personally led climate emergency declaration campaigns in uh, Kingston, Greater Dandenong, Cardinia, uh, wow. Monash, which um, unfortunately was unsuccessful, uh, and Mornington Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And we've assisted other groups in campaigns out in um, Bass Coast, out in Stonington, uh, helped found the Glenara Climate Action Network, did a little bit of lobbying for ER Rangers, so forth. So we've been really heavy in that space done a little bit of work uh, federally and statewide since, met with a few members, tried to really push hard that we need to stay under 1.5 degrees. And hopefully mm-hmm. we'll see some results out of that in the next month. Ideally, we'll see how we go. Hey, just a, can, I just, can I just ask Asha a quick question on that? Um, the, the history of the climate emergency declaration I think Jane Morton told me that the first declaration made here in Melbourne in one of the councils well, what, here. Uh, it was in um, it was in Darabin City Council um, with I mm. think I think Trent McCarthy who moved the motion um, actually is a contributor to Climactic, isn't it? Isn't he, Mark? He's definitely a friend of the show. I don't think I've yet had him on, but I've you know seen him at things and we've had good chats and we're uh, yeah we're we're on good terms, yeah, so, Trent. Yeah, so yeah. Back in back in 2016 was the very first one, uh, and then it mm. didn't quite um, take off here at the time. I, I, I keep a little map of it. Um, and in July 2019, there were six councils in all of Victoria that had declared a climate emergency. They were all clustered around the inner city. The furthest out was Arbor Bank. Now it's over 30. Um, wow. And it goes from Indigo in the north uh, to Bass Coast in the south. The majority of Melbourne councils are declared and uh, for those of you listening, a climate emergency declaration isn't just a pat on the back. It's not just a motion. Uh, it comes with um, with clear targets. Um, in each of the councils where we've got an emergency declaration, the councils have all agreed to go carbon neutral by 2025, um, mm. except for Pass Post, which um, agreed to go carbon neutral by 2030. But they made up for that by saying their community would go to 2030 with them, which mm. is very ambitious. Mm. Um, 
Um, yeah. The other councils well, are council buildings and council fleets can go carbon neutral, but the actual municipality going carbon neutral is a different yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, yeah. yeah so they're getting the municipality carbon neutral. Most of them have agreed to aim for that by 2040. Councils have some levers to get there. Um, they obviously need state and federal help to get everything done. But we've been working really hard on environmentally sustainable design and urban forest strategies and bulk uh, mm. purchasing agreements and things like that to really help get the municipalities over the line. I've just put in the, uh, the comments oh, of the Facebook live stream. Sorry, uh, Daniel. Just uh, There's a link to lgcet.com, which is the Local Government Climate Emergency Toolkit. That's been put together by Dale Martin, one of the councillors on Darabin City Council until uh, right. very recently. So I actually uh, volunteered on Dale's uh, initial campaign uh, back when he was first running in 2016. Perfect. Wow. So he just put this together and published it. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful resource. Find a link to it there. Also a running tally of those community, uh, of those councils who've declared emergencies at caseonline.org, C-A-C-E online.org. Fantastic. And, um, and yeah, and the organization I founded to do that with is called Southeast Climate Action Network. We were really concerned that a lot of the push around uh, climate was coming uh, from like the inner north, which um, I used to live in the inner north. It's a fantastic place. I love it uh, very much. Uh, but unless we have uh, sway the Victorians uh, really pushing for this from right across the state, we're not going to get to where we need to. So I was like, okay, let's try to build up the movement in the suburbs. And uh, we've been very lucky and very successful in that. Yeah. yeah. That's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? You know, it's uh, the local communities. It's, um, it's fantastic. And, and the fact that the EU now has, a, has declared a climate emergency as well. You know, that just shows you from something that, that starts out small, it can, it can just grow so quickly. It's so, grow so big as well. It's that old yeah. expression, you know, from Darabin to Danzig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, another one. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you two have a lot in common. There, there's history, there's mutual respect, but it's okay for people to disagree about things within the climate community. And it, it mm-hmm. happens a lot. And we need maybe a way to disagree better or, or to disagree publicly in a, in a you know, constructive way. Um, just quickly to frame what we're trying to do here, can you think of any examples of disagreements done well in the climate community? Because I'm sure we can all name and rehash and relitigate in our minds disagreements done in public that weren't constructive and it's no point rehashing those. Have you seen any good examples of, of people disagreeing and coming off better for it? Or is this doomed to fail? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I can't. I can't remember seeing any disagreements, to be honest, except except for obviously the the backlash to the Michael Moore documentary. Mm. That was that the kind of thing you're referring to, or more more between groups, more um, go to the name of this thing, a, a degree of difference. A well, yeah, I might agree with you most of the time, but on this, we really don't agree. But like, you've evolved my thinking. I've changed yours, and we're both kind of better off for it. So for me, um, I, I think it's an interesting quirk of human psychology that uh, although uh, climate groups, and in fact everyone, uh, disagrees on things uh, fairly readily, we only remember the things that we disagree with that, that don't get resolved. So I could, uh, I could very easily like label like 15 disagreements that, are, that no one came off satisfied. In. Um, even though I've had uh, hundreds of conversations where there's been uh, differences that have been resolved um, between us and being able to, as you say, like evolve our people's thinking. I couldn't name any, mm-hmm. which is uh, pretty funny. 
that's a really good point. And so if this is successful, this, this pilot, and if this goes on to doing more of these, it will be kind of a cool thing to have historically, a way to look back on, oh, I used to think X, and I was talking to someone who thought Y, and by the end of it, I thought X plus one, and they thought Y plus one, and I can kind of see how, not, I won't remember it as vividly because it wasn't a fight, but I can actually see that I, I iterated and I leveled up my understanding of something, which will be kind of, I think, a good thing. And by doing it in public like this, we're letting other people come along for the ride as well. And yeah. hopefully watching this while eating their dinner or having their Friday after work knockoff. So to get into the nub of it today, I don't have a great recap to give of the the parliamentary side that really kicks it off, but it doesn't matter so much. But the background to this is the Greens, the Victorian Greens, the State Greens Party tabled a, a motion to say we should have a Victorian Green New Deal. This motion, I'm not sure exactly whether it was, you know, just a just a motion without kind of any enforcement to it or or actually what what the act was. I didn't get up get the time to do the research on this. But the thing passed, I know that through Victorian Parliament, I believe it was like 22 to 15. And then in the wake of that, in sort of much celebration from people within the climate and the green space, not that those two are exactly overlapped, but both the green space and the climate space, people seem to be quite happy about this. And then there was a tweet yesterday morning by a state environment minister, member of the Labour Andrews government, uh, Lily D'Ambrosio to say, uh, and I quote, sorry guys, but this is laughable. A feel good motion just before a state budget can't make a government do anything. The labor budget gets delivered by labor. You'll then tweet saying, hooray, we did it. Budgets take vision and hard work, not stunts. Hashtag only labor. Takes us to why we're here today because that kicked off a bit of a disagreement on how to respond to this tweet and, and largely the position taken by Victorian labor versus the Victorian Greens, who's taking appropriate action on climate change, who's taking delayed action or inappropriate action on climate change, and who's outright denying climate or or the true severity of the climate crisis. Is there anything Sorry, about that recap that you'd like to correct? Sure, I could, um, I could add a little more context to it. Um, Thank so you. the Green New, so essentially um, the Senate passed um, a uh, Green New Deal motion. Now, unfortunately, that wasn't a comprehensive suite of policies that we associate with a Green New Deal, but more the idea of a Green New Deal has been endorsed um, by the Senate. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out that this was, like, it was brought by the Greens. Uh, the Greens voted in support of it, obviously. Labor also voted in support. I think reason, we're not forgetting you. I just don't want to say you did things that, uh, <laughs> that I don't know whether you did or not. Um, this is a pilot. And, this is only a pilot. This is not the news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, in the wake of that, uh, Sam Ratnam, who is the leader of the Victorian Greens, as I think most of us would know, sent out a tweet celebrating that. She said under it, this is the first time a Green New Deal has been formally endorsed in Australia. Absolutely. The next step is to ensure the government follows through in the upcoming state budget. And I think what riled Lily about that is some idea that I felt like she was trying to push back on the idea that uh, the Greens brought forward this motion and so therefore any climate-friendly things that come in the budget are green accomplishments rather than mm. uh, labour accomplishments. So it was almost like she's trying to like keep credits, like, hey, hey, we've done 
we've done work here. So don't you go stealing credit for this. Um, yeah, that's, kind of that's kind of where I sort of saw it coming from. Yeah, I, I really, that's really interesting. And I, I really want to respond to that. But first of all, I have to, I have to say, I'm not representing the Greens with these views. Mm. My, my views today um, are my own. They're not, they're not the views of the Greens. I just want to make that, that clear. I'm a member yeah, of the Greens. Yeah. I'm a member of the Greens and I'm a, big, I'm a big supporter of the Greens. But what I say today does not represent the Greens. This is the point. That, that, that the fact that she took offence to it it's in itself shows you that she doesn't understand it's, this isn't about who, get, who wins politically here. It's not about who wins politically. This is about getting the best climate policy we possibly can as fast as we can so we can drive our emissions down as fast as we possibly can. No one should be taking any offence and we should be doing everything that we can to ensure that the budget that gets announced next week, is it next week? The sitting days are between the 10th of November and I think it goes up until just about the end of November. There's um, I think okay. like three or four days left of the year. So the budget the should be two weeks. If we're serious about climate change, if, if we're serious about action on the climate crisis, then we need to focus on the budget and figure out what's the best policy we can possibly do to get us down as fast as, as fast as fast as we can. We need a World War II scale mobilisation and that's what I'm saying to Dan Andrews. And that, that's why I did the 10-day hunger strike last year. Mm. And that's why, I, you know, I got arrested and stuff like that. And I'm doing all this crazy stuff and spending 16 hours a day on bloody Twitter yelling at politicians and journalists, which is what I do every single day. I yell at journalists and I yell at politicians through Twitter. Mm. And I do that because this is fucking serious, guys. Mm. And our politicians need to take it seriously. And that's why I'm, I get so passionate about it. And... Just the fact that she commented was enough to tell me that she's not serious about climate action on climate. We should have all been celebrating that moment because that's a moment that I've been looking forward to for 20 years, mm. you know, and that should have been a celebration. So I'm sorry to, uh, I suppose to sort of, I'm not uh, representing Labor yet. I'm not actually a Labor member and I'm not affiliated with any party. Uh, mm-hmm. I suppose from my background, I work with uh, politicians from across the aisle, so uh, Greens, Labor, um, even Liberals, when they're willing to come to the table uh, to try to get um, policy through, um, because out in the suburbs, we basically, we don't have the luxury of only having uh, Greens and Labor to deal with, so we have to engage with everyone. Whereas I come I come across as a moderate, I'm not necessarily a moderate, but I am in favour of getting things done. I, I'm very sympathetic to the the argument. This should have been a celebration. It wasn't. I'm not actually defending the tweet. Um, mm. The part that are that I suppose I pushed back again is uh, I believe you called Lily a clump denier uh, in the wake of that, and I thought that was like ah, oh, I thought that was uh, that was that was not correct, and that it was a uh, poor strategy as well. And I, I'll, I suppose we'll elaborate on that as we go through. When it comes to the actual Green New Deal front, I, I think we should be celebrating that. It was um, a momentous uh, step forward. The Andrews government is relatively good on climate, and I'm hopeful that we'll see a few really big new announcements uh, come out before the end of the year. There is a long way to go. We only have a 50% target for uh, renewable energy generation by 2030, and that's, that's simply not good enough, right? Uh, 40% by 2025, okay, I can accept that. Uh, but to go from like only from 40% to only 50% in the next five years after that, not good enough. So there's definitely, definitely room for improvement. I'm not depending current policy settings.
great opening statements. I, I, I would like to start there and just say, yeah, to, to recap kind of what kicked this off was the endorsement of a Green New Deal in, in Senate, Sam Ratnam's tweet, Lily's response, Dan's response to Lily saying, Lily, you're a climate denier for oppose or for, and is it so much, so to that framing, so you're, you're in that moment, you're sending this tweet out addressed to Lily D'Ambrosio saying the environment minister is a climate denier. Is it because of the, the disunity at a moment where it, it should be kind of celebrated that we like, is this, what, what were you disappointed in? I guess. Uh, well, I guess I was really, dis- I, I, I was really disappointed because, um, I've been been watching a lot of stuff happen on Twitter for months, for 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 many months. Like, just to let everyone know who who, who doesn't know. I mean, I've, anyone who follows me on Facebook has seen I just constantly pasting screenshots of tweets that I see, and and you know, all day basically. And people are just like, oh, Dan's going crazy. He's tweeting, you know. He's putting these screenshots up like 10 every hour. He's a I know lunatic. Dan's not going crazy. Psychotic breaks don't last this long. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but what I, I mean, what I've been doing is I've been on Twitter all day, every day, following journalists, following politicians, like listening to politics every day and just taking snippets out and pasting them onto my Facebook feed just so I can go back through it someday and look at it because it's been an incredible six months. Mm. And like the impression that I've been getting, because there's a lot of Labor people, a lot of Victorian Labor people who are on Twitter and I've built up some really good relationships with them. I've, I've, I've interacted with some really fantastic people. There's been so, many, so much good vibes between Greens and Labor on Twitter. We haven't been attacking each other. We've both been supporting Dan Andrews. All the Green supporters have been supporting Dan Andrews. We've been out there fighting for him every day, especially against News Corp. On Twitter, we've been attacking News Corp, attacking Murdoch, right, for months, defending Dan Andrews, saying bugger off, leave him alone. He's, he's not, you know, don't pressure him to open up. We've been doing that on Twitter for months and the Greens and the Labor work together to do that. And like the Greens and Labor just had really good vibes lately. And then I, I just, I just thought we were about to see this, you know, great unity celebration of a Green New Deal in Victoria. Um, and, and I, you know, saw that tweet and I thought, oh, that's, that really sucks, you know. So in and, that context, you've got people within the Victorian Labor Party who you, you enjoy interacting with, you're, you're interacting with positively and productively. And so yeah. in that moment, though, where you're saying environment minister of the party that you believe in some, you know, is engaging productively, it goes back to why we're so like, kind of like, oh, you called her a climate what? denier. Can I ask, you know, would you stand by calling Lily D'Ambrosio today, right now, a climate denier? I haven't met Lily before, and I, to be honest, I don't know a lot about her. And I, when I said it, I was probably feeling pretty angry. And I'm sure that Lily is a lovely person. Um, by my definition, my thinking of the definition of what a climate denier is, um, she, she would be, and, and any leader in this country and any leader in the world who isn't doing everything they possibly can to reduce emissions does not understand the science, does not understand the urgency, and therefore is denying the science and is therefore a climate denier. That's why I think, that's why very, I said- Very clear articulation, we can get into that. Asher, maybe to, you know, to go to you on, on how do you kind of define 
the term climate denier in the late 2020s. And we can get into why these labels matter and how they change over time and Overton window stuff. But to kind of take a snapshot of you right now. Sure. So for me, um, a climate denier is someone who is actively blocking climate policy. So uh, for me, that's your Craig Kelly's, uh, that's your Peter Dutton's. I know I've um, talked to liberals. Um, liberals actually, uh, I actually hate being called climate deniers, except for the ones that um, that really like. Um, that there's your your like active like climate doesn't exist, um, or like climate change doesn't exist. People, and then there's people within the Liberal Party who are like climate change exists. Where uh, we want to do something about it, but we're going to be way way too slow. Uh, there's no defending that um but they hate being called organized even though they probably deserve it uh some mm. of the time or at least climate delays right um for me uh lily and uh people like her um they are moving as fast as they think is possible um now that there's differences in opinion on how fast that is right like if you take the like the xr definition right um they want us to be at net zero by 2025. Uh, and by their standards, um, if you took uh, Daniel's definition, uh, Bernie Sanders is a climate denier because he only wants our uh, transport and electricity to be carbon neutral by 2030 and not even not even everything. So there's definitely a difference in opinion. But the science at the moment says that as long as we get to carbon neutral by 2050, um, we can stay under one point there's a lot of asterisks there so i would not i would not necessarily uh say it's as simple as oh as long as we're down to zero by then we need to be moving fast we need to be uh, like really squashing that curve quickly if we can get to like 67 percent reduction in emissions by 2030 then we can have that long tail out to 2050 but if it's like a straight uh decline then um uh, then it really has to be by 2040 uh, no, can i just can i Sorry, sorry, Asha. Can I just interrupt? It's, it's, we've got to go far. We've got to go as hard as we can. We can't targets. These haven't, I, I don't even agree with the XR target. I, I don't think we should set it. We don't set a date like, oh, 2025. We're going to get there by 2025. We're going to get there by 2030. We're going to get there by 2040. We get there as fast as we possibly can. Right. That's, that's, the, that's the goal. The goal is not to get to net zero by 2030. That's, that's a dumb target. A smart target is to go, how do we all maintain our current living standard, right? Our current living standard and get to net zero as fast as we possibly can. And what's the economics for that? And what's the engineering for that? And, and, and then, you, then you attack that. And things like, you know, building separated bike lanes throughout Melbourne so people can get on their bicycles and ride to work and feel safe. And uh, get, let people leave their cars at home as much as they can get people walking in their communities and cycling in their communities, get, get the cars to slow down. We can do that. That's, that's something that's easy. You know, that's, that's a policy that they can easily do. And the greens have a great policy for that. So we, we need to change the target. The, the target's not, okay, we'll go get to 2030. We just go as hard as we can, as fast as we can. We all pull together and we have a war. It's like, it's got to be a warlike effort. And I, I don't want, I don't want to make the war analogy, but I'm going to, because it, it's, it's about logistics. It's not about actually fighting it, but it's about logistics because the logistics of the, of the second world war was phenomenal that, you know, you had the whole, whole countries that, that transformed their industries 
transform their manufacturing to point it at the existential threat that was facing them at the time. Within six to 12 months, they converted factories over from making cars to making, you know, army vehicles, etc. We can do the same. We can create solar and wind industries here and, and people can be working in high-tech manufacturing. We can train people up and we can, we can be making our own renewable energy here. Like we, we can do that, but we need to act now and we need to, st- enough with these bullshit 2025, even XR, all of it, 2030, 2040, bin it. Let's get there as fast as possible. It's a good thing to sorry, do. Sorry, sorry. It's a pilot. Um, and the problem with us climate folks is we all talk to people who disagree with us a lot and we all have to come prepared with our arrows in our quivers, like ready to like throw down and debate. Three of us are all on the same page. I, I know that for sure. Like no one's disagreeing with anything. It's about like... We all, we're all in the crane and we're all trying to get the box from point A to point B. We're just like working out which levers in which order do we pull to get that job done. We all agree the box <laughs> needs to move. Um, so, Asher, okay. I, know, I know you've got things to respond to and stuff, but I, I just want to, yeah, just quickly frame that with um, there's a lot of other facets we, of course, haven't brought into this yet and we're not going to. We, we need to, in order to, to do something productive, we kind of need to really narrow the scope down a little bit, which... Now, I just want, really want to focus, I guess, for this on the two terms, climate denier and climate delayer, when we apply them and why. And actually, like, how do we talk to other people in society using those terms effectively? Because we all want to get to the same place. Um, I'm really, just a quick question for the two of you. You've heard each other. You know each other. I, I know you both. Are you the same person who live in different places? Asher, if you lived in the north of Melbourne, would you sound a lot more like Daniel than you do day to day? And Daniel, can you see yourself being a bit, you know, across the aisle a bit more like Asher has to be in Neri Warren? Uh, No, I don't think so. I definitely respect uh, what Daniel does and um, I definitely think there's a place for it. I think Twitter activism gets uh, kind of derided and sometimes unfairly so. But I think there's also truths to these sort of arguments that um, Twitter is a bubble. This sort of feeds you back into like a lot of what I want to say like when I reply to uh, what Daniel sort of said, um, which I'm going to sign post for myself so I don't forget. We were able to do the World War II mobilisation effort because we brought people with us, because everyone uh, was working together. If we turned around tomorrow and said, like, hey, we're going to like a World War II style total mobilisation, we're going total war against this thing, we don't have the community buy-in for that yet. Uh, I would dearly love to get to the point where we do, uh, but yeah. we don't have it yet and it's really unfortunate that we don't and that means there's still work to be done uh i'm very much of the opinion that uh no matter where you are whether you're out in a rural area like where i was born or in the inner city or in the outer suburbs where i am now it's all about bringing community along with you to frame it back to you daniel do you think if you lived in an area where it was harder to reach consensus on these things or harder to to get people to acknowledge the problem at all would you kind of be okay with getting people to take step ones, one, two, three, to get them up and going? So, yeah, that's, that's actually a really good question. But um, I don't think the, what, my approach, I don't think, has anything to do with where I live. My approach at the moment probably has a lot to do with how I grew up, which was in the country, in, a, in Claremont, which would make where, where, you, where you live uh, look like metropolitan. I think that, that every, like so many people should be getting into um, community activism and community building, totally. 
why I do what I do is because um, I believe that the, um, the, the media, in particular the Murdoch media, um, Channel 7, Channel 9, are not telling the truth about the, the climate crisis to, to people who live in those communities across Australia. So in everyone's home, like in my family's home, Channel 7 is on all the time, but Channel 7 is owned by Seven Group Holdings and Seven Group Holdings is owned by Kerry Stokes and Seven Group Holdings owns four gas plants and an oil plant, right? So the company that Seven Group Holdings, which owns Channel 7 and the West Australian newspaper, also owns oil and, all these oil and gas assets. So why would David Koch and, and Sam, like why would they report on the climate crisis when their boss is making millions from oil and gas, right? This is how crazy it is. And, and Well, I, I fully agree with you that the media environment in Australia uh, makes it really hard. And that's why I actually think that, uh, that what you do is really valuable. Seven has, in fact, uh, done a little bit of climate reporting because I, I know that because actually I got an interview on, on Seven uh, once over the Monash human sign. Interesting to see how they framed it too. Um, they sort of let us have our say and didn't uh, frame it as bad, but then the, the headline was climate fury which was nothing to do with what we were doing at all a little bit of uh, an editorial difference from the journalists on the ground there well they, they like they just can't own oil and gas assets and be a truthful media organization it's impossible so just on top of that and when so when i do talk I, I may sound angry and it's my anger's not directed at you both just just so you know we know i know i got okay sorry or you watching apologize or anyone watching, I'm not getting angry at you. I'm getting angry at the situation that we're in, right? Because it's it's really it really sucks. We were basically told um, in the '90s, which I was very young, but um, like, look, you know, we'll um wait for the technology to get better, and we'll do something, and it'll all be fine. Uh, and it was all not fine. Uh, and we have waited far too long. You only have to look at our God. It feel it feels like forever ago, but it was only. It was only like 11 months ago that, uh, that we had like half the country on fire. It's worth being mad about this. Um, yeah, it, it is. It is. The way Sorry. we channel that anger is really important. And I suppose that really, that's where my real difference to you on like, oh, you know, do we, do we call people who are acting but maybe not acting quite as fast as we would like? Do we call them a climate denier? I don't think so. I think the better method there is engagement. And just want to also quickly, because I know you're going to want to answer that, uh, but also when you are talking about the about the targets thing, I understand where you're coming from. I think targets have a valuable place. Um, you, you can tell that because the person arguing against having a specific target and arguing for just going as fast as we can is ScoMo. Yeah. Uh, and ScoMo wants that because uh, ScoMo is like, well, look, if we don't have a target, as fast as we can is in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah, uh, it, what it is. What you consider to be as fast as we can is very different to what um, like even uh, XR does, even what um, the Greens do. Even well, I'm Labor, a certainly what the Liberals do. I'm a I'm a big as pe people who know me know that I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, a big fan of Tesla, and a big fan of Elon Musk. And um, he, he doesn't like set these targets. He's just, they just go he, for. No, he famously for sets them, but then doesn't meet them. Very very famously oh. sets them. <laughs> He sets okay. lots of targets. He just never. Uh, meets I, don't wanna, I don't want to. I don't want. I don't want to get down. To targets that cannot be met, uh, and then delivers them like five years behind what his schedule was, and 
10 years ahead of whatever everyone else's schedule was. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's get it. Let's get some targets. Sure. Let's get a 2030 target or, or, or whatever gets, let's get them in, but let's just get on with it. You know, yeah. let's get the policy. We have to make it known that there are solutions out there that, that like the, the, the technology is all there. That's, mm. that's the thing. Like I, I, my background is in engineering and I always wanted to work in renewable energy, but then I was kind of, as I got older, I realized well, the, the problem's not a technical one. Solving climate isn't a technical problem. It's a political problem. And that's why now I'm doing what I do. And that's why now I spend all my day on Twitter because I'm doing politics. All the politics happens on Twitter. Everything. Um, I, I, yeah. I strongly disagree that all the politics happens on Twitter. Um, well, maybe not. Maybe stuff at the, public, at the public bar happens. Um, on, so the way, <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, Christian Porter might not like this episode. Um, uh, no, what I was going to say is... The difference between how we act and the we, we I think we both have a really valuable part to play in them. Basically, what your your goal is, you're trying to shift the overton window. You're trying to talk with, uh, like influence the public conversation, uh, on Twitter and in the halls of our Parliament through that. Um, and so that's one very important thing. It's something XR does uh, quite well as well. They go out and make uh, if you're being uncharitable, you'd call them stunts. If you're being charitable. Uh, you'd call them legitimate expressions of anger, which I do think they are. I think XR does mm -hmm. a very good job. But basically, they're, they're out there waving the flag, saying we need to go faster, we need to go harder, and getting that into the conversation. And then what uh, people like me do and what CCAN does and so on is we then come in behind that and we go, okay, let's build up the community support to actually get this happening. Um, yeah. Talk with people who are not yet convinced um, who are like, okay, look, I hear about climate. I don't really understand what, like, you, you say there's jobs in here. What what jobs are here other than, like, uh, installing solar panels? That's something uh, we hear a lot. Mm. Um, people mm. who are like, okay, look, um, we recognise climate change is happening. You know, it's a problem for my grandkids' generation. Um, so that's, that's something um, we get less now that the fires have happened. But, like, a year ago, we got a ton of. Um, our goal is to then build up the community support to then actually get that stuff done. Because you do mm. not, you don't get anywhere if the community's not uh, in favour. Otherwise, you just get people like Donald Trump elected. You get uh, ScoMo re-elected. Uh, you need to yeah. build that uh, community groundswell. And Twitter is fantastic at influencing the conversation. Twitter doesn't build the community groundswell. Most people aren't on Twitter. Most people don't pay attention to Twitter. Uh, I love what that, you that's, do. This is this is where you this is where you miss the point. So, sorry, Asha. But this is where you miss the point, right? This is where this is okay. Everyone who's not on Twitter. This is what you don't get about Twitter. It's not about influencing people on Twitter. It's about influencing influential people and journalists who then have programs and change their discourse. So if you can, you know, if you can get someone like, like a particular journalist more concerned about climate change as they should be, then when they do their reporting, when you know that when there's four, four corners are looking for stories or or when uh, David Spears is questioning the Prime Minister of Australia, will he ask him about the climate crisis and how urgent it is and why he's not taking action now? So David Spears is on Twitter. So we need to tweet. We can, we can use strategies and we can, like, alert him to how important it is for him to ask those questions to the Prime Minister. Because when he asks those questions to the Prime Minister on Insiders, the whole country sees it. So by influencing one person, David Spears, to ask the right question to the Prime Minister on the national broadcaster, you can influence millions of people. 
Okay, that's why I do it. That's just one example of the thousands of things that I've been involved in over the last six months with people, with, with hundreds and like th thousands of amazing people on Twitter and we're all connected. There's thousands of people connected on Twitter who are working together, getting hashtags trending. Tell us the election day story. Five minutes. Or the, the, uh, or the election okay. week Biden story. So we'll, Settle quick, in. Quick, back, quick background on PR guy. He, he's um, been doing a lot of the I stand with Dan stuff and like getting a lot of support around Dan Andrews trending. And he's got a really great sense of humor. He's got a little Simpsons character as his, um, I think it's Troy McClure. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And um, he's fantastic. He's really funny. And he's really, he, he or she, but I believe it is a he, is, yeah, I'm not sure. But he has software that analyzes, like, can analyze graphs on Twitter. So when there's like a poll and one, you know, that what, what was happening was they were running these polls and then all of a sudden the, the conservative view would spike. And his software picked up that there was this artificial like liking or, or manipulation of polls on Twitter. Uh, is this Scott and he something different? Uh, Scott Spots, that, that's another thing. That's, that's another story. But, we'll but leave he, that he, one for another day. We can leave that one for another day. Yeah, that's, that's another really funny one. But so PR guy picked up this, this odd behavior on these Twitter um, polls and then he screenshotted it and, and sent it to Paul Barry from Media Watch. And it was on Media Watch. So PR guy's tweets were on Media Watch. And when PR guy started out, he was originally tagging me a lot in his tweets so that I'd go and retweet him. So he tagged me and then I'd go and retweet him around because he knew I, I was you know, all over the shop on Twitter. And then his account grew really rapidly and, and like he got to like 10,000 and now, now he can just get stuff trending, right? So if PR guy starts, he's got such a good network that he can, he can whip up a, a, a hashtag and get it trending to number one. Like that's power, you know? If you can get something trending on Twitter, it's being seen by everyone, like the politicians, all the journalists, the lawyers, the, you know, all the influential people in the country who are on Twitter are all seeing that hashtag. If you did a word cloud of, of news coverage, the words trending on Twitter do get said a lot and, and it does accompany news coverage of a thing. And until it is trending on Twitter, it's like it doesn't matter. And then as soon as it's trending on Twitter, that is like a huge validator and it opens that door to news coverage, which is interesting. As I've said before, um, I really do support what you do there. I would again push back on the idea that everyone uh, sees it. Um, for a large part of the country, I know, I know when you say everyone, you're talking about like influential people, right? Um, but when I think of everyone, I think of the whole community, the whole country. I would say the majority of Australians pay almost no attention to Twitter. Now, that's not counting like um, the spin offs that you had, right? Like, so, okay, so have a Twitter hashtag, it's talk to ScoMo, it's on the nightly news, then people see it. Uh, if it makes that chart lane, that transmission, um, something trending on Twitter by itself doesn't create change. It can lead to change being created. But uh, I'd, I'd kind of really like to get back to conversation about our climate deniers. Um, yep. I suppose like, I, I suppose the core of our difference, right, is um, if you'd let me sort of like uh, phrase your mm. argument for you, my understanding of it's essentially Lily isn't doing enough Therefore, she is a climate denier and therefore, or even if you didn't use those words, therefore, therefore, because she isn't doing enough, um, she needs to be demonised for that. Um, she, she needs to be called out for that, right? And I suppose the can the argument, the one I'm making is like, we do need to call out when action isn't happening fast enough. Of again, mm -hmm. fast enough is the, the beholder. 
although there's still more to be done, antagonizing actual allies, not even potential allies, but actual allies, is just a way to create infighting within the climate movement, which Lily is a part of. Um, mm. And so while, yeah, while there's room for conversations about, um, about moving faster, uh, I really think that our emphatic uh, demonization, I think, is probably not helpful in this case. Would you like to do the, the same there, Daniel? Yeah, sure. And uh, th thank you for the, the question and the comments. And um, I, I'm, I don't enjoy, like, a attacking people, even though it, I, I've been doing it a lot on Twitter. And, um, you know, I don't want to, to go out and attack people comments or, or whatever and calling them things through social media and i'm sure that lily is like a, lo a lovely person and means well and is doing everything she can within her power like landscape so her power landscape is probably really complex as is every politician's power landscape and you know got all this different influence from different angles i totally understand that that's a, a, an incredibly difficult position to be in um, and I was probably, you know, a bit angry at, at the time because it meant so much to me and it's something that I've been looking forward to for 20 years probably to see a, the, the turning point of when we hit peak madness and we start to, you know, actually wind, get, get, get ourselves at least trending towards safe climate. Um, so I was probably a bit upset and I probably said something that maybe I shouldn't have. And, and, but at the same time, if, or, if we can define climate denialism, let, let, okay, let me define climate denialism and I'll, I, I retract calling her a climate denier, but I'm going to, de I'm going to define climate denialism. So if we believe the science of the climate science, it's very scary and we're, we're already passing tipping points. And when we pass too many tipping points, you know, it'll just accelerate. And we're talking about exponential acceleration and we don't come back from that. It's game over. Okay. So there's no like rise and fall. This is like now or never. It's now or never. If you're a leader and if you're in a position of power and you're not doing everything that you possibly can to reduce our emissions, then you are in denial of the science of, of climate change. Because if, if you, understand the, the science of climate change you would be you, you would know how urgent it is and you would be doing everything in your power to reduce our emissions that's that's how i would uh, define climate denialism so we've gone an hour and three minutes without saying the term overton window and we were going to talk about it before but it's already well, been... I, I mentioned it sorry i missed it <laughs> there's been a lot of words <laughs> i'd Love to get into that uh, and sort of like what the purpose of the Overton window is. It does get discussed a lot within climate. And if I can just quickly, you know, because it has been said, I'll just quickly give the definition for Overton window. And rather than have you both kind of give your understandings and like talk about how we kind of, that was a really interesting articulation just there, Daniel, of the understanding of being a climate denier, how you can apply that label to mean something more than it means now, that it kind of moves the ball forward as it were. Just the quick definition of Overton window, ironically, it like, it's literally the definition of things that don't stay static. So the definition of Overton window shouldn't remain static, but here's the current definition from Wikipedia. Uh, the Overton window is the range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream population at a given time. 
It is also known as the window of discourse. The term is named after Joseph P. Overton, who stated that an idea's political viability depends mainly on whether it falls within this range rather than on politicians' individual preferences. According to Overton, the window frames the range of policies that a politician can recommend without appearing too extreme to gain or keep public office, given the climate of public opinion at that time. To very quickly, if we can, like, is that your understanding of Overton window? And I'm sure we've all used it in discourse. And how do you mean it when you use it? Uh, That is my definition. There's greater ambition that needs to be taken. Like, so bringing this back to the uh, policy at hand, right? That is how I'd, um, I'd go with the Overton window. The Overton window in Victoria at the moment allows for a fairly ambitious um, climate policy, more ambitious than, um, than the one we currently have. And I'm very much looking forward to finding out if um, that's the one we're going to have because we're awaiting the new emissions reduction targets that will come out for the next uh, decade. Uh, we're awaiting the state budget, which we have been told has several really great uh, climate policy uh, announcements in it. Uh, some have already been announced, like the 300 megawatt um, battery, which is, uh, will be, I think, the biggest in the world, at least one of the biggest in the world. It's like twice the size of um, of Horndale, which was the biggest three years ago. South Australia's uh, big battery. Yes. That the Musk battery, it. as some people refer to it. Yeah, the Elon battery. <laughs> the, uh, Brooks, the, the Twitter battery, it's all circular here. Hey, hey, there you go. That's Twitter. That was a very concrete uh, example of um, of good Twitter. The battery uh, that Twitter built. What a, is there a better example? Ex, sorry to cut over. Is there a better example of uh, how powerful Twitter is? One tweet and bang, you've got a massive battery. As I said, I've never, I've never said that, uh, that Twitter activism is useless. Yeah. Just that it's not the whole picture and um, that we have to go beyond it. Totally. No Daniel, your, your understanding of Overton Window, is that any different? I learnt the meaning of Overton Window from one of the most effective climate activists in Australia, uh, Jane Morton, um, who I went to, a, a, who I met through Extinction Rebellion. And um, yeah, we mentioned, I think we mentioned Jane earlier, when um, she was integral setting up the first climate emergency declaration. And so I, I went to a talk that Jane did an intro talk to XR and she discussed the Overton window there. And basically XR is trying to shift the Overton window and the Overton window is say um, where the discussion is, is like neoliberal lines that have been pushed out over, over decades is that there is a debate or that, you know, there's a debate around climate science or there's two sides to the argument and that's shifting that's, that's pulling it away from where it should be, which is on the science. I understand your framing of the Overton window. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. So I've got just a couple more kind of main points to hit, and then we can mm-hmm. maybe call it a successful pilot. I was discussing this topic with my co-host on Serially Curious, one of the shows on the Climactic Collective, uh, Eve Brennan, and she suggested this phrase as a discussion point for this, which is, justice delayed is justice denied. This is a legal maxim. It means that if legal redress or equitable relief to an injured party is available, but it's not forthcoming in a timely fashion, it's effectively the same as having no remedy at all. This phrase has roots in the Bible. It's mentioned in Magna Carta, and it was quoted in 1970 by the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Berger. I'm sure, you know, there's thousands of other references to this truism. How do you apply this to, to this particular discussion? Asher? Sure thing. Uh, so I actually um, agree with it, um, to be honest. I think that the 
delaying climate action that we've seen up until now is pretty criminal. Um, feel very sympathetic to, like I think uh, Daniel is very good at showing his uh, anger at the uh, lack of the status quo. I'm more circumspect about it, I think. Uh, but that doesn't mean I don't feel the same frustration, the same anger um, that we've been getting delay after delay after delay and like, look, just mm. get on with it. Uh, we have the yeah. technology. It's all there. Uh, with, with things that we have today, we can get to 100% uh, renewables. We can get to uh, net zero carbon. Uh, we can do it. It just requires a political will and it just requires mm. um, the community support to do so. Uh, and I think it, it's hard because it's a constantly moving uh, target um, and there is never enough. Like, like it, it, no matter what we do, there's always more we can do. Um, if we were like, okay, look, we've got a plan to get to 100% renewables by 2030, um, like, okay, look, um, for um, the right price, we can get there earlier. Uh, the question is trying to make sure that we can do enough to keep us in a safe climate future, which is hanging by an absolute thread. Uh, don't yeah. get me wrong. Um, we yeah. still are able to stay under 1.5 degrees. If Trump had won, that would be impossible. If we don't come back to the next climate conference in 2021 in Glasgow, if we don't come to that with, uh, with stronger targets, and when I say we, I'm in the world, um, 1.5 isn't possible. If we make those targets but then don't meet them, 1.5 isn't possible. So we're, we're hanging by a thread. If we can still do it, things have to go right at this point to stay under 1.5. It's a little easier. There's a little more leeway to stay under 2. To stay under 1.5, we're just barely there, and we need to be going full throttle. Um, we have to do it in a way that we can bring people with us. Otherwise, it'll just get uh, reversed uh, four years later when you know you vote in a bunch of climate deniers. If you don't get if you don't get enough support from the community for action on climate, uh, they will not vote for climate friendly candidates. They'll go, oh, look at these loons who are uh, uh, who are paying more attention on climate than they are on like jobs or whatever. And even though you and I know both know that uh, there are no jobs on a dead planet, um, that's not a message that is ubiquitous in the community. It's not a message that everyone has received. Um, it is a message that the state government has received, interestingly. They are very interested in the transition to renewables because they're very job focused. They're actually a lot more job focused um, than even I am. And they can see a huge benefit as well as um, like to transitioning as well as the downsides of not. And I think that's something that um, to quote another book you quoted on Uninhabitable Earth, I'm going to go from uh, Rebecca Huntley's How to Talk About Climate Change in a way that makes a difference. Um, mm -hmm. There's definitely room for this sort of like uh, fear that, you know, we are heading towards an unsafe future and that we need to act now. There needs to be hope as well. Um, that fear needs to be tempered with hope. And to do that, uh, we need to show the positive future that we have with us, uh, which we which we do have. We're not we're not as great about talking about it, unfortunately. Um, we're very good about talking about um, the uh, the dangers uh, that are coming. Um, that the mm -hmm. urgent need to act because uh, because of all the terrible things that will happen if we don't. And all of that is true. Um, mm -hmm. That alone is not enough to bring people with us, and we need people with us to get action. So uh, I think we don't spend nearly enough time talking about 
uh, the benefits. I think there's um, a really famous cartoon that's like, oh no, you know, if, if climate change uh, turns out to not have been real, which uh, unfortunately, I, I wish climate change wasn't real, uh, but it is very, very real. But he goes, uh, you know, yeah, if, if climate change is real, we just made a better world for nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that really comes down to it. But we really, yeah. really have to be pushing that. Daniel, justice delayed is justice denied. Is that the same or climate justice delayed is also climate justice denied? I tend to agree with that because there's no, we can't, we can't just put it off now because it's like, it's, it's all, it's really like all or nothing. We don't get justice after we um, go through climate change. We all just, you know, life just gets progressively worse every year and, and you have no hope for the future whatsoever. But at the moment we do have hope. We've got incredible technology being built by companies like Tesla with their major massive batteries and their, electric vehicles which will eventually become like robo taxis and we'll, you'll probably you'll probably see they'll end up being like a public service autonomous taxi service that goes around the city but people don't really understand Elon Musk's business model that well i think that's the the direction that they're heading in but it, regardless the technology is there it's and even the manufacturing capacity of tesla is exploding so they they've set to do 2 million vehicles next year up from like 1 million this year they are going gangbusters and and we're going to see this technology rolled out across the world very quickly. Um, so we can get to net zero a lot faster than these politicians are telling us. A lot of the politicians at the federal level are connected with coal, oil and gas companies. And, and this is another reason why I'm quite an angry person these days. I never used to be. I used to be a really friendly guy. But I'm really angry now because I learned so much about all these different connections between politicians, lobby groups, fossil fuel industry representative companies, and the oil industry, the coal industry companies, the gas companies. Side note, a friend and I set up this thing called Access Disrupt, and we started making these memes showing different corruption scandals because there's so many. We thought, how do we show all this, this corruption? Because people go, oh, yeah, there's corruption there, there's corruption there now and then, you know. But you don't see it all together. So we try to put it all together. So people go, holy shit, there's like so much corruption out there. And there is. And so um, when, you, when you read that, you just, it just depresses you. And you're like, oh, we're actually going to suffer the consequences of climate change because of a whole bunch of corrupt fossil fuel connected politicians, right? That's pretty hard to stomach. You know, um, probably not going to have, uh, don't really want to have uh, children because I'm, I'm so worried about climate change. And these corrupt bastards have taken taken that from us, right? So if we want to talk about justice, I'll go back to the threads, right? Just to give you a quick idea. Alexander Downer, who was uh, the foreign minister of this country under the, in the Howard government, he, after he left parliament, six months after, he set up a lobby firm called Bespoke Approach. Basically, that lobby firm lobbies for a few of the largest oil companies in Australia, like Woodside Petroleum and Santos. Right. So Down is from South Australia. Santos is from South Australia. These guys don't want us to get to 100% renewables because we won't be buying any of their oil and any of their gas. These are the guys that have been in parliament for 20 years, more than 20 years. Right. And they're connected to the fossil fuel industry as if they're going to want us to get to net zero. That'd be the dumbest business person ever. Why would you destroy your own industry? You know? It's you crazy. Would be surprised there, actually. Um, I'm not. I'm. I. I fully agree with you on the corruption. Um, 
I was I was going to point out that at this point, cheaper to create, like it's far cheaper to create uh, new solar and new wind than it is to um, create new coal. Within five or ten years, it's going to be cheaper to create new solar or new wind than running existing coal. So that that industry that's, is dying. Whether we do that's, something that's, or that's not, that's fine. But what's not fine is when you learn about how the econo- macroeconomic system works. MMT. Can we do MMT a little bit? No, no, you can't. Right now, I, I, I 100%, I'm fascinated by it, but it is definitely a whole hour. <laughs> so we got to give someone. Okay, okay, we'll do that another time. Sorry, sorry. All good. There's two more points to, to get through. And sorry, I didn't answer you. I didn't answer your question. <laughs> Wasn't for lack of trying. Go for it. So I would say that what we want more than justice is for our government to act. Sorry, Daniel, we're losing you quite a bit. It's gone quite staccato. I'm going to take us to another question. This is like question time, and I'm now stepping in as Hamish McGoddled and doing the moving on thing. One question here, I'm going to give you each two minutes to answer, and then I've got one final wrap-up, and you can start thinking about it now, and I want you to think, have you learned anything or got a greater appreciation for each other's perspective than you had at the start. Is there anything you're going to take away thinking like, ah, Asher had a good point or I hadn't agreed with Daniel about that before. Even if you don't agree, just maybe something that you uh, you thought was well articulated. Uh, but before that, a question on what would you do if you were not king for the day, maybe not queen for the day, but but Dan for the day. If Dan was a dictator and Dan's not a dictator, but hey, <laughs> keeping it within the Victorian context, your word is law. That law is to be upheld by societal institutions, the power of the courts, the power of the police. You have got one day in which to make said laws. What do you do? And for the sake of this discussion of like moving things forward in the way you think is most actually effective, people are the exact same, just you can set some laws. Uh, This is a thought experiment rather than a test question. You don't have to get anything right and I'm not going to grade you. Uh, You're going to have two minutes each though and I I will enforce it. I'll give you a one minute warning. And a 30 second warning, and then you're out. Uh, who wants to go first? I think it's Asher, right? Yeah. Sure. Asher. Um, okay, sounds good. Uh, okay, so what would I do? Um, first thing, I'm trying. I'm going to try to keep this within the realms of the possible. Um, I would set um, a renewable energy target of uh, 100% renewables by 2030. Um, I'd probably push up the uh, 2025 target to 50% or maybe 60%. Um, uh, we'll see. I would set your lawn to close down. Um, wouldn't close it down overnight because, unfortunately, uh, we still need its energy until we get the placements up online. Um, but I would uh, uh, schedule it to be shut down. I'd also start scheduling the uh, shutdowns of the other coal plants um, to happen over the next decade as we can get more fuels online. I'd start to deal with um, Tasmania for their link um, to become the quote-unquote battery of the nation. I would move to have a statewide um, fast charging network, which is already happening, but not happening nearly uh, fast enough. If it was federal, I'd, uh, I'd remove the uh, like, like the luxury tax for EVs, but I can't do that. State only. I would put a lot of investment out into the community to add transition, uh, sorry, to create um, a transition into clean jobs, try to re-energize our manufacturing industry, especially our lithium-ion uh, batteries. So on, uh, we really need to be able to create community benefits. Uh, oh no, I'm running out of time. Um, I'd try to get as much out into the regions as possible. I think our, our regional Victoria has uh, unfortunately suffered um, a bit of stagnation, um, a bit of uh, economic uh, decline. I'd really like to use um, the opportunity for transition to revitalise that. 
revitalize the suburbs and I only have 10 seconds. I'm going to finish it there. Great. Good start. Well done. Very interesting. Start of the South. Nice. Offshore um, wind farm. 100%. All things that Dan can do. Very interesting. I, I tried. I tried to keep it within the uh, within the possible things things that could be done. Otherwise, it'd be like, yeah, let's get to like one hundred percent renewables by twenty twenty one. Not possible. Wonderful. All right, Daniel, are you ready? Three. Oh, internet. Oh no, he's smiling, but it's frozen. If it's gonna work at all. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're back yeah. now. Oh, we really hope you don't freeze out during. Can you the- hear me? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Three, two. Yep. One. Yeah, okay. So obviously at uh, state level, if, if there's a budget, then I'll, I'll list out the cheap ones, the cheap stuff like first, I guess. Uh, so I think the best thing that we could do is, is um, have a bicycle superhighway through Melbourne and just have se- good separated bike lanes everywhere. I used to live in Amsterdam. 70%, 70% of people cycle in Amsterdam. It's amazing. The air is really clean. The city's really quiet. Like uh, you don't have all the pollution getting into people's lungs and like it's really unhealthy. So getting more people onto bikes and and pedestrians and walking and, and, you know, not having cars running through our communities. Like I live in this beautiful spot and there's all these cars going through everywhere. Let's, you know, slow the cars right down. Let's get, get on our bikes and get walking around. That's the first thing I do. Really encourage people to get out into their streets. The people need to take back the streets, right? And it doesn't cost much. You, you know, we're spending billions on roads. So let's leave. We don't need the roads because we don't need any more highways because Tesla technology. But I'll tell you about that another time. Keep option over half your time more is gone. Cars on, more cars on smaller number of roads with, with Teslas because they can bunch up. But that means that we don't need the roads. So take the spending from the roads, put it into bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure and these super, super blocks where You've got these amazing walking areas and, and go over to Amsterdam and Copenhagen for a trip. Lily, I'm sure you'd like to do that uh, to check out their fantastic uh, infrastructure they've got over there. And I know I haven't said many, but I just wanted to make that point because that's probably the most important one that I think there is. And then obviously heaps of uh, renewables, heaps of storage facilities and electric vehicles. I think Tesla, you know, their tech their charging stations are incredible. There's just, they're so, people don't understand how far ahead Tesla is on everyone else. No one's going to catch them. They're just, so I don't know how to deal with that with public ownership, but yeah, sorry. Got sidetracked. All good. Done. Very good point. I, I, would, you. I, would, I would like to say I'd very much like to see um, a gigafactory in Victoria. However, um, oh, yes. I also, would also like to point out, um, while Tesla is great, at many things. There's definitely issues with um, with Tesla regarding unionization, uh, regarding uh, Musk is a bit of an asshole boss, unfortunately. Let's 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 talk about Tesla on another episode. Yeah. Yes, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, I thought it had we we brought up Tesla enough that I really had to mention that. Um, that we can't end it. We can't end this story. We can't end this fantastic discussion with your last sentence being Musk is an asshole. We're not not no <laughs> yet. Say something nice about each oh, other. Such a good chat. You can. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, like Ash and I, uh, we're not like against each other. And the, the climate movement—it's a multi-pronged, it's a multi-pronged it movement. Right? I'm playing on. I know that's a cliche, but it's, it's 
it's true isn't it like it's it's true we we got all we need to hit the community we need to hit the media we need to hit everyone oh, yeah. yeah you're cutting everyone's out again. involved in this and we need to change all of our systems we need to change all of our systems so we we got most of that but yeah you're cutting out a little bit again daniel um asher oh, yeah yeah uh final question is yeah what did you take away from each other's comments and, and sort of thought processes? If you uh, sure. take, take away one thing from the, what the other person had to say, what would it be? Okay. Uh, one thing I found really, really interesting uh, was when uh, Daniel talked about the power of using Twitter to create a conversation outside of Twitter. I definitely think um, that when it's like just on Twitter, uh, it misses the majority of Australians, unfortunately. Um, but he made some really, really valuable points about how what he does on Twitter can then jump across into the outside world and then can influence people who don't even have Twitter accounts, um, who have no idea what a hashtag is. I thought that was a really, really valuable, uh, interesting uh, comment. Uh, and it made me think about slightly differently. Very good. Daniel, final, final oh, cool. words. Yes. Ash said a lot of stuff that I, I really enjoyed listening to tonight, and I, and I do like. Uh, we're just not a, we're not a, in competition at all on mm. on anything. We're just working in different fields in different fields, really. We're we're in Only different departments. Different. We're basically in different departments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I mean, one of the things I guess Ash made me reflect a little bit more on my my comment to to Lily and. Um, and it was probably said in the heat of the moment as well. You know, like I was, I was pretty upset. Um, yeah, I apologize. I take it back. But by my definition of, uh, of climate denialism. Mm. Yeah, I, I found but that. But I really do, yeah, I do apologize. No, that, that I, I took a lot away from that. I found that really productive. I'd call this a rousing success. I definitely want to do more of these. Thank you both so much for joining us yeah. for this, for the first ever whether we keep calling it degree of difference, I think I'm in love with the name now. So I think it's going to stick uh, call yeah, out for cool. cool cover art for this. <laughs> if anyone has any good ideas <laughs> for what this type of content with that name degree of difference should look like, let me know if you know of any good hosts for something like this, if you know of any good guests who have honest disagreements uh, and who can talk about them from a place of mutual respect and productive engagement, we're happy to host them. And thank you so much for being yeah. the first to do so. Awesome, I think uh, Daniel's going to be uh, champing at the bit to uh, take me to account on uh, my current on Tesla at some point. <laughs> yeah, love you around too, for sure. And I just want to th yeah, thank you both. This has been really enjoyed it. It's, it's great to have these kind of these, these discussions. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what comes of it. Yeah. I've had worse Friday nights. All right, take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a good one. Okay. Bye. My video over. <laughs>
truthful version of a kishkala. Um, you put out like five or ten different things, and I'm like, I actually like 90% agree with all of these things. So unlike a kishkala, where um, yeah. if you don't know, like they throw out basically a hundred false statements, and then the time taken to like uh, deny them. What's a kishkala? Uh, like, a kishkala. So basically, it's a rhetorical technique in debating, um, where someone puts out uh, like, I'll just say like. Posting after posting, Ben Shapiro is really great at it too. Say like, um, oh, climate change isn't real, and um, and like um, polar bears are thriving, and ten other things. And you can only like, and it is two minutes to say it. And you can now to to rebut any one of them, any single one of them uh, is going to take more than two minutes. So you put your two minutes and de- and uh, debunk yeah. like one of them, and okay, you debunk that. But then he's got like nineteen other statements that um that you haven't had time to like refute mm. and so it's for the audience like um like oh you couldn't refute that just because you spent all your time um like refuting one you're like a truthful yeah. version of that where instead of like uh being full of lies you put out like 10 different statements and like i'd really like to get into all of these things i only have time to like get into one like yeah. you had a real well, well this um i was gonna say you had a really about what, sorry? statement about how um the greens and labor work together mm. about how the greens and labor work together on twitter um, kind of really interesting because um, I've yeah. got uh, both sides sort of things on this. Like if you looked at like the um, the Roy Morgan poll that came out today, um, like actually more Green supporters support Dan Andrews than Labor supporters do. So 90% of Green supporters uh, support Dan uh, in how he's been tracking, but only 82% of Labor supporters do. So I found that very funny. But then on the other wow. hand, people can really underestimate the degree of difference um, between Labor and the Greens and like. There's, especially at, at, a, at a federal level, um, there's a lot of trauma, in fact, like um, yeah. like from the Labor side, where they they almost feel like they were betrayed by the community. And they went on like that for another 20 minutes or so, and it was so great being part of this conversation, getting to host it, uh, make some space for it, for these two people who get along so well and have so much in common but uh, just to have a space where you can tease out the degrees of difference between their perspectives. Thank you to both my guests, Daniel Bleakley and Asher Coleman. We had no idea what to expect. We had no idea what it was going to be like, but I think you'll hopefully agree that what we landed on was worthwhile, it was fun, and hopefully you'll want to hear more. So this is coming to a screen near you. Uh, It's going to be a video series, actually. It's going to be streamed on simpatico.tv, C-I-M-P-A-T-I-C-O.tv. And the audio of it will be then released on Climactic. So to start off, I'm not sure yet whether it's going to have its own feed or whether it's going to be bonuses on the Climactic feed, or honestly, probably the Climactic Candid feed. Sounds like the perfect place to put this. If you know anyone out there who is a earnest, genuine, hardworking member of the climate community, and they have a friendly, or maybe even not so friendly, disagreement with someone else, but they're willing to engage with them in an honest, constructive, productive, and healthy way, that is exactly the type of conversations I'm looking to host on Degree of Difference. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Mark Spencer, the host for this pilot. But as you probably heard already, I am actively looking for other hosts to take this on as well. To either just spread the load or to completely replace me so I can just get into the good fun of producing and editing 
and running a podcast network in my spare time. So if you know anyone out there who's been a debate moderator before or is just always that person in arguments at the pub who's playing referee, they would be perfect to do this. Just get them in touch with me. You can reach me at hello at climactic.fm. And thank you so much for listening to this pilot episode of Degree of Difference. Share it with a friend, leave us a rating and review, and please reach out, let us know what you thought. We really appreciate hearing your opinions. Keep up the fantastic work and take care of each other in these climactic times. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people of the Climactic Collective and all the shows on the network at climactic.com.au. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.